Start selling on Shopify today. Go to shopify.com slash CNN for a $1 per month trial. Hey everyone, I'm David Chalian, CNN's political director, and welcome to the CNN Political Briefing. New York, Louisiana, Arizona. I'm not just listing states here. I'm listing just a few of the ones involved in redistricting legislation. There are currently between 14 and 18 House seats in contention across nearly a dozen states. 435 ramps in Congress means 435 districts among us. But how do we decide who represents who we draw lines on a map? That's what we do. Gerrymandering is both pretty complex and very unsexy. Hence, the need for cartoon explainers. But it has the power to flip control of the House of Representatives next year. Nick Seabrook is a professor of political science and public administration at the University of North Florida. He's written two books about gerrymandering, most recently, One Person, One Vote. Nick, thanks so much for joining me. Really appreciate it. Thank you, David. It's great to be here. I think back to my Schoolhouse Rock Live education, and I know that the designers of our democracy arranged for this decennial census. You know, every 10 years we count the people and we reapportion and one person, one vote means we've got to have equally sized districts. And I thought that was it, that it was something that happened every 10 years. And correct me if I'm wrong, and it's just my impression, but it seems to me now we are in a constant state of redistricting in a way that perhaps may not used to have been the case. Is that true or not true? It is true. And I think it's particularly true in this cycle because a couple of developments that occurred, most notably back in 2019, the U.S. Supreme Court in the case of Rucho versus Common Cause basically said that uh, plaintiffs could no longer bring partisan gerrymandering challenges in federal court. And this was the avenue by which cases had generally played out in in prior decades. And so what that has done is shifted an awful lot of litigation to the state level. And we're seeing many, many more cases alleging that a particular political party has biased the districts against their opponents uh, coming up in state court uh, and playing out. Uh, Another reason why I think things have been delayed uh, until after the 2022 election is because You had these two big cases that the Supreme Court decided uh, in its most recent term, the Allen v. Milligan case relating to racial gerrymandering and the Voting Rights Act, uh, and then the Moore v. Harper case relating to the so-called independent state legislature doctrine, which is uh, a whole other rabbit hole that you can go down when it comes to redistricting. But the effect that that had was putting on hold a lot of litigation in the lower federal courts that ordinarily would have probably been resolved ahead of the 2022 election. And that 2019 case that you're speaking of that said, don't bring us your challenges to partisan political gerrymandering, is another way to say that is that there was tacit approval from the Supreme Court that you can go ahead and politically, on a partisan basis, gerrymander. Well, the court was clear to say in that ruling that it wasn't taking a position that gerrymandering was necessarily okay. And we've seen this as a recurring theme in a lot of the Supreme Court litigation over the decades that the justices will say, well, this is certainly an unseemly practice. It's certainly undemocratic. 
But our our hands are tied to do something about it, that the federal courts, the Supreme Court are not necessarily the place that you should be going to fix these problems with our democracy, which uh, is a catch-22 when it comes to, to gerrymandering, that you have a practice that is fundamentally anti-democratic, that effectively rigs the electoral playing field uh, against one side and in favor of the other. And you have these courts saying that, oh, well, the, the way to fix a, a broken electoral system is to elect politicians who will unrig the elections from which they personally have, have benefited, which ha- has been the central irony of, uh, of what this has, uh, how this has played out. But the court did say in that decision that to the extent that judges should be involved in ruling on the fairness of electoral districts, that they should be state judges rather than federal judges. And we've seen a lot of lawsuits in places like New York, uh, here in my home state of Florida and elsewhere, where state judges have been doing precisely that over the last three years. Yeah, it reminds me, listening to you uh, describe what the court is saying there, that old expression of voters should be picking their politicians, but basically politicians are charged with picking their voters in many ways. Now, the current situation, as I understand it, there are between maybe 14 and 18 congressional seats, House seats, that actually could be up for grabs on the drawing of lines alone here across basically a dozen states. So what is your current assessment of What's at stake here and the state of play, given such a narrow House majority that exists right now? Right. So you had a nine-seat Republican majority in 2022. And in many ways, that majority is owed almost entirely to developments that happened in New York and, and Florida. In New York, you had the state courts overturning what could have been a pretty egregious, almost 22 to 4 Democratic gerrymander in that state. That map was replaced by one that gave Republicans much more of an opportunity to, to pick up seats. And of course, they did in a year where, where Democrats significantly underperformed in New York elections. And the other state was here in Florida, where you had Governor Ron DeSantis inserting himself into the redistricting process, vetoing the maps that the state legislature had produced and putting in place this gerrymander that gave Republicans 20 out of the 28 seats here in Florida. And that's basically the entire margin that Republicans won by uh, in 2022. And with so much up in the air with developments in North Carolina, we're expecting the GOP to pick up seats as a consequence of a shift in partisan control of the state Supreme Court there. Uh, And these various other lawsuits playing out across the South, what happens over the next six months or so uh, could potentially tip the balance of uh, of the House elections that are upcoming in 2024. Which is just remarkable to think about. So let's uh, just stick with New York for a second. You mentioned what happened in 2022, but the 2022 election results where Republicans picked up a bunch of seats in New York, as you, as you noted, that's not the final word on this. There's ongoing litigation, and those 2022 lines may not be put potentially the same lines, yes or no? Well, even if the lines are the same, I think New York is an area where Democrats could potentially pick up a number of seats. Uh, So in 2022, Republicans won basically four seats by less than three points in New York. 
Uh, and then the other seat, the one represented by uh, Congressman George Santos, who has had a fairly eventful career in, uh, in the national legislature so far, could potentially be in play as well. What happened in New York is that the voters created an independent redistricting commission back in the last decade. But this commission did not necessarily have final word on the districts. And so what happened is that the state legislature ultimately rejected the maps that the commission drew and put in place its own gerrymander. And what's happening now is that you have lawsuits playing out in New York. They're attempting to kick things back to that commission and kind of start the entire process over again. Presumably, the state legislature could then do exactly the same thing, reject the commission's map and try and reinstate the Democratic gerrymander. And what about in North Carolina? You mentioned a change in partisan control of the Supreme Court. Explain to listeners why a change in the Supreme Court makeup can now actually result in significant gain for Republicans in total congressional seats in the state. So one of the things that I've observed in my research looking at gerrymandering going all the way back in U.S. history is that uh, it's often impossible to separate kind of partisan considerations, which side is likely to benefit from the political affiliations of the judges who are deciding these cases. Uh, It remains true that democratically appointed judges are more likely to scrutinize Republican gerrymanders and vice versa. And so what happened in North Carolina is that there was a lawsuit in state court after the GOP redistricting occurred in 2021. And the state Supreme Court, which at the time had a four to three majority of Democratic appointees, voted along party lines to strike that down. They said that it violated the state constitution, that the state constitution makes partisan gerrymandering illegal. And that was exactly what the Republican legislature had done. And so the court put in place its own map. That map produced a seven to seven equal partisan split in North Carolina's congressional seats in 2022. But another thing that happened in the 2022 election is that there were two seats on the Supreme Court that were up for a vote as well. And two of the Democratic judges lost their seats to Republican challengers. And so what had been a four to three majority of Democratic judges suddenly became a five to two majority of Republican judges. And all of a sudden, the court had a very different outlook as to whether the Republican gerrymander was legal or illegal. They revisited their prior decision, reversed it, and that opened the door for the legislature to draw new maps, which turned a 7 to 7 map into something that's looking more like 11 to 3 in favor of the GOP for for 2024. That's not an example of elections having consequences. I'm not really sure what is. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to have a lot more on the state of gerrymandering in this country and how control of Congress could be decided on just that alone. We'll be back with Professor Nick Sieber. Shopify's taking the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing for your retail store? Upgrade your point of sale system with Shopify. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. 
Get award-winning support and see why millions of businesses worldwide trust Shopify. Do retail right. Grab your $1 trial at shopify.com slash CNN. Start selling on Shopify today. Go to shopify.com slash CNN for a $1 per month trial. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome back. We're here with Nick Seabrook, professor and author of One Person, One Vote. Professor Seabrook, I want to know in your research if you have explored, I'm sure you have, states that have nonpartisan commissions that draw districts versus states that have partisan-controlled legislatures draw the district. Do we see a difference in the outcome of the partisan makeup of districts in those states, A, and B, in terms of litigation for political advantage? Yeah, so that is something that I did look at in my book. And we see an enormous difference between states, not only states, but countries that have some kind of independent body that is responsible for drawing districts versus states and countries that allow partisan elected officials to accomplish that responsibility. And the U.S. is really the the last advanced democracy in the world, pretty much, that still allows this kind of gerrymandering to take place. Over the last hundred years or so, other nations have realized that when you leave the foxes in charge of guarding the hen house, the consequences are not likely to be good for the foxes. And so they have created some kind of independent body, separate from partisan politics, separate from the legislature that is responsible for redistricting. The major obstacle in the U.S. system has been federalism. The fact that redistricting is something that is accomplished at the state level in all 50 states means that it's difficult to impose the kind of national solution that other nations have had success with. Nevertheless, we have seen, particularly over the last decade, more and more states adopting some kind of independent redistricting model. And California was really the first state back in 2008 to create a truly, not just independent, but citizens redistricting commission, where ordinary voters, equally balanced between Republicans and Democrats and independents, would actually accomplish this task. And since then, we've seen the citizens redistricting commission model adopted by California spread to other states like Colorado and Michigan. And if you look at the districts in those states, certainly it's not the case that they are entirely unbiased. Uh, When you have single-member plurality districts, you're always going to have an element of bias in the system. But when you have an unbiased and independent and non-political process, you tend to get much better outcomes. And I think the evidence from those states and the evidence from other countries demonstrates that independent citizens redistricting commissions are really the best practice when it comes to this area. What do you consider a better outcome when you say that? Well, a a better outcome would be one where you don't have a systematic tilt 
in the translation of votes into seats. You don't have a situation like we see in states like uh, like North Carolina and Florida, generally considered to be swing states, states that have been pretty close in their statewide elections for president and for other offices, where you have one political party, the Republicans, controlling 70 to 80% of the seats in Congress. You can also look at a state like Wisconsin. I have frequently made the point that, at least at the state legislative level, Wisconsin is no longer in any meaningful sense a democracy. For more than a decade now, the districts have been so systematically gerrymandered in favor of Republicans that there's no plausible popular vote result that could ever break that majority. Republicans have lost the popular vote in Wisconsin and still won two-thirds of the seats in the state legislature. That's the kind of situation that you get with gerrymandering. At least if you have an independent process, you have a fair playing field where it's plausible that both sides have an opportunity to control the legislature if the voters see fit to reward them with that control. And if I were to put you on the spot and ask you to make the case for why gerrymandering could be seen as a positive, what would you say? And what is the argument for the system? So I would say that the one area where gerrymandering has been a positive and where you can use manipulation of districts to to achieve a positive electoral outcome has been the effects of the Voting Rights Act. So the Voting Rights Act doesn't just say that you are not allowed to discriminate on the basis of race in voting. It also says that you have to take affirmative steps to enable minority constituents to elect representatives of their choice. And as a result of the Voting Rights Act, as a result of states being required to draw districts in which minority candidates can be successful, we saw in the 1990s and in the 2000s and up to the present day, a significant increase in the percentage of minority office holders, both at the state level and in Congress as well. That's one area where I would say that gerrymandering, defined broadly, has produced a positive outcome, one that wouldn't necessarily have been the case were it not for that legislation. And that brings me to another state that I wanted to discuss with you, which is Alabama and how the Supreme Court recently ruled in that case, and then what is happening now back at the state level, because it seems that we may see a net change, perhaps, in the congressional district breakdown in that state. Yeah, so what's been happening in Alabama is, I think, something that has been playing out across a number of states that have seen population growth, places like Texas, Florida, Georgia, and where most of that growth has been concentrated among communities of color. And yet the redistrictings that occurred in those states did not necessarily reflect the growing populations in those areas. And so in Alabama, uh, the state legislature drew a map that had only one district for Congress where it was likely that black voters could elect candidates of their choice. Despite the fact that, at least in terms of their percentage of the population, it seemed likely that two districts would be necessary to satisfy the Voting Rights Act. And there was a lower federal court that did indeed rule that this was a violation of 
Section 2 of the VRA. And in a somewhat unexpected outcome, the Supreme Court affirmed that decision in the case of Allen versus Milligan. Alabama is one of the states where the litigation has played out at this point. The Supreme Court has ruled, the lower court has ruled, they've selected a map, and there will be a second Black Opportunity District in Alabama in 2024, one that is overwhelmingly likely to elect a Democrat. And we may see similar outcomes in Louisiana, in Georgia, where cases are, are currently being appealed. But the, the, the pattern here is that when you have population growth among minority communities, states need to take that into account when they're drawing districts. And if they fail to do so, the courts are going to tell them to go back to the drawing board and address that. Now, I know your work here is uh, nonpartisan and academic in fashion, so I want you to take that uh, into consideration uh, as I ask you to put a political pundit hat on for a moment and say, given all that you just described that's happening across the country, across these dozen states or so, and how many potential seats are at play, do you think it's possible that control of the House of Representatives can be determined on on this alone, on these redistricting battles alone? I do think so. And I think a lot of that will largely depend on what happens in New York. The effects of the decisions that we've seen so far, North Carolina in favor of the GOP, Alabama, Louisiana, Georgia, potentially even Florida, leading to seats that are likely to go to the Democrats. That's been a wash. This has been a common theme in this redistricting cycle, at least at the congressional level. You've seen Democrats have success in some states. You've seen Republicans have success in others. It all has canceled out to a national map that is considerably less biased than we saw a decade ago. If Democrats can somehow finagle this process in New York to allow them to replace this map with something that's as egregious as the pro-Republican maps in places like Florida and North Carolina, that could be what puts them over the edge uh, in terms of the battle for control of Congress, because we have such a narrow margin right now. We have a presidential election that is shaping up to be another closely contested battle, most likely between Joe Biden and Donald Trump again. And if that is the situation, what happens in New York could determine whether we see a Democratic majority or a Republican majority in 2024. Nick Seabrook, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you. That's it for this week's edition of the CNN Political Briefing. We'll be back next Friday, November 10th, with a new episode. And we want to hear from you. Is there a question you'd like answered about this election cycle? Is there a guest you really want to hear from? Give us a call at 301-842-8338 or send us an email at cnnpoliticalbriefing at gmail.com. And you might just be featured in a future episode of the podcast. So don't forget, tell us your name, where you're from, how we can reach you, and if you give us permission to use the recording on the podcast. This episode was produced by Madeline Thompson. Our senior producer is Haley Thomas. Dan DeZula is our technical director, and Steve Lichtai is executive producer of CNN Audio. Thanks so much for listening. Until next week.